Welcome to episode 69 de Texting. Avec moi, Justin Vincent et le other bloke, Jason Robert. Bonjour, Jason. Bonjour, very nice. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. So, uh, this is our first weekday show, I think, we've done, our discussion show we've ever done, I think. In the week. Well, but we're still going to post it out on the weekend, right? Yeah, I should say at least a morning in the morning. We've done it. We've done a few of Friday afternoons, but that's yeah. like weekend anyway, right? So, uh, you're, what's the deal? You're you're not using your Mac. You're still not using your Mac to record the show. What's going on? Well, I need uh, I need a special converter, and that means that I have to buy the converter, which means I have to take the five minutes to figure out which converter to buy and actually make the purchase. And well, I guess, guess what? I've just sent you an email with a, an Amazon link to the exact converter you need for nine. 95. Now, are you sure this will work, or is this just... Uh... It's good. It's got 95 uh, reviews. Uh, it's like uh, 4.5 stars. Yeah. I But think it'll work for Max. It's it's for the conversion for the iMac? Yep. Mac okay. OS X. It's, it's, right. Well, it's the same thing. It works for PCs or for Macs. It just basically converts an audio signal uh, via the USB. Okay. I, I just wanted to make sure that that was the reason why it wasn't working. It was because the, the normal audio input doesn't work, that it's the USB problem right um basically it's it's what i was saying before max don't max require um a mic if it's going in through the mic input it requires some kind of uh power source for the actual mic itself okay all right well next then uh, i'll tell you what this this uh time next week or i guess our next show i'll have uh i will have bought the new uh, converter and we'll be in business sweet I'll be my Mac. and then so, you no longer need to boot up that pc <laughs> well, the PC is a laptop, so I just had to steal it from my wife. I showed Sandy. I said, "I said I need the PC," and she was in the middle of writing an email, so she's oh, that's like <laughs> okay. Um, the prices, the prices our wives have to pay for this show. They do. It's it's steep. <laughs> so we uh, we got some good uh, hacker news love on our last interview with uh, Gabriel Weinberg. Not bad. We got a thousand downloads in a day for that episode. Yeah, not bad. And uh, it got picked up by Read Write Web. That's hard to say. Read Write Web, um, and uh, they 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 sort of used my uh, concept, which was the the title I used for um, Hacker News was DuckDuckGo versus Goliath, an interview with Gabriel Weinberg. Yeah. And they sort of took that hook and said, "Startup versus Goliath." When competition is a, as a, when your competition is a giant, and they talked about DuckDuckGo, but they also talked about about Diaspora. And in uh, Diaspora is that open source version of um, of uh, Facebook. Do you remember? Yeah. yeah. That those guys, I guess, had at NYU. They they got something. I think it was a Kickstarter or something. They raised like two hundred grand. Yeah. So they, they, they talk about that. Anyway, I thought that was cool. Um, but the, the imitation is a serious, the sincerest form of flattery. Well, you, you were saying that, uh, I mean, it, it, the interesting thing is, is we're, we're now beginning to think that the, the title of the shows are extremely important. And it, it, I'm kind of surprised that we didn't really kind of focus on it that much before. But um, I do think that that's something we need to think about in the future, definitely. Well, it's definitely important for... Um, Hacker News and Reddit and Dig or things like that, right? Because people are looking at 20 or 30 titles at any given time and, and the ones that catch their eye are the ones they read. And um, if you have a catchy title that has some kind of hook or sometimes it's termed link bait, but at the very least it has a hook that people – it's going to get their attention. Then you've you got a much better chance that you're going to get some um, 
get some traffic. Because I'm sure that's why the Virtual Irish Pub did so well when it first came out in uh, like '94. <laughs> because when it's li- when it was listed in Yahoo, you know, you had all these other things, and then you had the Virtual Irish Pub, and it's just it's such a good name. Like, why wouldn't you click it? You know. And for people who are new to the show, what's the Virtual Irish Pub? Oh, some uh, like a community website that I built when the internet first started back when it was called <laughs> back when it was still called arpanet <laughs> <laughs> okay a little bit later than that <laughs> but there Sometimes was a time not- there was a time when when google first started and you typed chat the virtual right. Irish pub was number one really yeah that's impressive yeah. well was it just because you were early or uh because you early. understood how to okay no yeah Early. Well, that's what they say. It's like, how do, like, how do I, you, you hear people ask every once in a while, like, how do I build like a popular blog? You're like, well, start blogging in 2005. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's know? so easy. Yeah. It's so easy. Back starting in 2005. Yeah. You get the, you know, you get in, in early, but you know, there are always exceptions. There are people who I've seen pop up out of nowhere on, you know, because of places like Hacker News, they just, they write like just a slew of interesting posts and it doesn't take long. Like I think Gabriel Weinberg is an example of that. You know, yeah. he, he kind of came out of nowhere, like, I don't know, a year ago or however long it was when he first started posting and he just wrote a bunch of interesting posts. And now, you know, people know who he is. People read it, read his blog. But he's also kind of doing well within the, the Hacker News community himself with over 10,000 points, right? Yeah, he seems to be an active member. I mean, he comments a lot. I think he submits a lot. Obviously, he'd get 10,000 points in karma. I was kind of thinking about that this morning. Like, it'd be interesting to figure out, like, how people get karma because there got to be different types of paths. There are different types of ways that people the different types of users. So there are probably submitters and then there are sort of conversationalists. They're people who get a lot of points simply by commenting um, in the discussions. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd be kind of interesting if you could sort of, if you did like a, an analysis and you did like a clustering of people who have say over 2000 or 5,000 points or something. And you analyze like, where did most of those points come from for those people? And I, I'd be interested to find out, if there is a if there is like a distribution like sort of a bimodal or trimodal distribution or something like that where or at least a clustering the thing i don't understand is that with my original hacker news account which was jv and then four twos mm-hmm. i got up to a karma of about 450 really and then from that point forwards it just wouldn't it wouldn't let me post it just anything i posted just went to oblivion i could see it but when in a logged out state no one else could see it so it's just like it ignores that account you, so got, I, you got banned. I don't know. I don't know. So then I had no. to, I, I set up a new account, JV, and then with six twos. And now that one's just, I can post, etc. And the other thing that it was doing, it was like, you, you know, the old, um, the kind of email honey, honey trap concept where um, when a server will connect to it, you just kind of keep the connection open. It was like doing that in my web browser. So when I logged in to serve every page, it was taking about, I don't know, 30 seconds. So the site was so ridiculously painful to use, I just didn't want to use it. Oh, for your old account? Yeah, with, with, with Hacker News. Hacker News was lightning fast unless I was logged in on my old account, and then it took 30 seconds to set yeah. up Yeah, well, you know, I, I had heard Joel Spolsky talk about this a few times, in, I think, in, in, in their Stack Overflow podcast before, before that was canceled. Right. And they talked about how do you deal with sort of uh, trolls or abusive users. Or, or, and uh, one of the things that he was trying to convince uh, Jeff Atwood, his co-host of, was not to just tell the person that they're banned or start a fight with them that 
that you ban them, but you make them think that they're not banned. Or you, you, uh, it's like if someone posts a comment that is considered spammy or, or um, argumentative or, or something, it's just not appropriate. Yeah. You don't tell that person because it makes them angry and they get in a fight and then you have to constantly deal with them trying to attack you or get back at you or something. You make them think that they were um, accepted and everything's good. But as far as everyone else is concerned, they don't, they don't, the thing's been deleted. Now, and by making it really slow for you, they probably just you know, said, all right, for these banned or blacklisted accounts, we'll just make the experience kind of sluggish and slow so they won't want to use it but it's kind of weird it's it, it's like why why me <laughs> well I, mean, I don't know but those are really good tactics right <laughs> yeah they're really good tactics because i just had to well they're good except that i just then have to go and open another account i can't use the jv2222 i have to just create a new account and start submitting stuff with that well, why, why do you think you get banned i've got no idea no idea. Why would you get banned with four? I mean, I, I tried to talk to some people on Hacker News about it, and they said, oh, you weren't banned. It's probably just a bug with the system. So then I tried to contact the uh, the, go- the people who run the whole thing. No joy. Hmm. Well, I don't know. You know, uh, you know one thing that's interesting is, is that I think they... Paul Graham recently um, mentioned that he changed the, um, changed the algorithm a little bit so that it's better picking up voting blocks. <clears throat> so then people collaborate or conspire to vote all together to get a story right up on the front page and uh he said he used some ideas from the guy the reddit guys um you know because one of the reddit guys i can't remember his name alexis i think joined um hacker news or i'm sorry uh, white combinator i see they're like east coast um uh point of presence or something and so they use some of their algorithm uh, some of their breaded algorithms to to make that better but one thing i've noticed is like what happened at least maybe this is my imagination is that stories were staying on the page longer there was less movement of stories it was like i'd, I'd log in and then three hours later log in i was like wow is the page even updated right or things seem to move i don't know if it was just my imagination but it seems to me that there's less uh, influx of, of new material but well, it, there's, there's the same amount of influx, but less of it's getting onto the front page kind of thing. Yeah, that might be so. Uh, anyway, well, let's, uh, let's switch it up. Um, so what you got topic-wise? I've got a whole bunch of topics. Um, I suppose one of the, one of the things was that uh, I changed the price on Plugio okay. to, um, to move it from 10 bucks to nine ninety five. And um, I moved the twenty buck plan to nineteen ninety five. Special discount, all right? <laughs> well, no, because just because um, from from discussions with uh, my boss Bob uh, from my Vibo, he was he was saying that um, by moving that price point down, it it can basically create a much larger a larger percentage of people don't see that price as an obstacle, right? Mm-hmm. When, when you just move it that that five cents just below the the actual mark. So um, it's too early to tell what the effects is because I've only just done it for a few days, but uh, I can I'll report back. Yeah, well, I mean, that's obviously a very common of cognitive bias that people have, and, and, and you hardly ever see anything sold for a round number. It's always nine ninety nine or nine ninety five. Like I'm looking at that converter you just emailed me on Amazon nine ninety nine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, list price twenty two dollars. You know, <laughs> uh, the list price is always a round number, <laughs> but the yeah. actual price is a discount. You know, and it, it kind of is. You know, in that whole list price, the current price, it. Um, it works as the what's it called? Uh, if there's a cognitive bias called anchoring, which we've talked about, I think before, but I'll just cover it one more time. Which is that if if you and I are in a negotiation for how something's worth, right? If I say, well, you know, it's worth ten thousand. Like if I put out the first the, the first number, 
right? Because sometimes what you want to do is you're like, well, you, you, you're like, well, I, I want to let the other person throw out a number and then, I, you know, that way I can kind of go off of what they're thinking. But that turns out to not work because what happens is if, if I come up there and I come up with a really high number and I say 50,000, you're going to be shocked. Like, holy crap, why does Jason think it's worth, this is 50,000? And then I say, but I'll tell you what, dude, I'll take a big discount and, and I'll do it for, you know, 30 or 20. And you're going to be like, wow, that's still expensive. But at the same time, you have that $50,000 number in your head. And so it seems like I'm taking, I'm moving a lot from away. I'm, I'm really um, compromising to come so that down. That was the idea about having the ridiculously expensive plan. So that right. when you have multiple plans on your site, you list one for like a thousand bucks a month because then it kind of puts the others in perspective. Probably does. There might be other things that play into it. So like if you, if you have enterprises that like to think of them as like really big and this is very serious. And so for instance, you know, the whole, the whole um, saying, you know, no one ever got fired for hiring IBM. So mm-hmm. like a big company, you know, buys a service and if they don't, if they pay for like kind of like a trimmed down version and if there's ever a problem and someone said, hey, what, what happened with that? Didn't you set this up? And, and then like, yeah, I did. And you, but you didn't get the enterprise version for us. So we're screwed because of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. There could be a little bit of that plays into it, sort of an insurance. We want to make sure we're getting the best premium service and, and everything. Um, I, I'm just guessing, I'm just throwing that out there as speculation. But I think for sure that, you know, that works as, a, um, as an anchoring, works mm-hmm. on anchoring bias. So, so the other yeah. thing is, is that um, I set up the 30-day free trial scenario. I got rid of the, uh, free, the free account. I did that, I guess, well, 20 days ago because I'm now that, – that, that's the reason why I'm bringing this up because I've got another 10 days until that tranche of users hit the wall and then we'll see how many of them actually sign up for paid. Now, of mm-hmm. course, it's pretty easy for them to just sign up with another email address and get another free three trials. So that's what, that's what I need to see is just, just how, we, how many people are going to scam the system. <laughs> and if they do keep scamming the system, then I'm going to just basically have to go, right, you can only sign up with a credit card. Right. Well, can you tell because they'll sign up with the same email or do you prevent them signing up from the same email? I prevent them signing up with the same email. Okay. Well, then how, do, how would they scam it? Just setting up new fake Gmail or Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or something? yeah. Huh. Well, that'd be interesting. What percentage of your users are um, paid? Um, well, to, uh, well, of, see, it depends whether you want to talk about the people logging in every day or whether you want to talk about the whole user base. So oh, the whole okay. user base is around about 5,200. Okay. Of, of that entire user base, um, it's 2.4% currently is are paying. paying. Yeah. And, um, uh, okay. Of the people logging in, um, well, for example, at the moment... Um, there's 121 people logged in, and 37% of them are customers. Okay. So they're really not using um, – so uh, it sounds like a, not a ton of your resources are devoted to supporting the free users. Yeah, only- no, no, it's not a big okay. deal. Because, you know, in, the, in those freemium debates, you hear um, numbers brought up for companies like Evernote. And mm-hmm. it's just that they have such a thin margin because a very small number of Evernote users are paying. And so they really have to, you know, run a tight ship there in terms of, um, you know, their cost structure, I guess. But it's interesting. I'll be curious was, how that works. I was reading a uh, post yesterday. Oh, God, I can't remember which company it was about. But it was, it was um, an English blogger, uh, business analyst, who was talking about one of these uh, audio services. And mm-hmm. he, said, uh, he said only one in 20... 20- <laughs> He said, like, 200,000 people have signed up for this service and only 1 in 20 are paying. I was like, 1 in 20? That's incredible. That's like 5% conversion rate. 
Right. <laughs> uh, who said that? Who was oh, it? Was I, I wish I could remember. It was something like Spinley or... Oh, it was something... It so they, was, just, they, they just have no clue what the standard numbers are. Yeah, exactly. So I, I'd commented on the thread and said, look, dude, like you're lucky if you get above 1% for a freemium system. So this 5% is doing fantastic. Yeah, like 2 to 3 is, qual- is usually a quality service. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. Something like that. And if you're 4 to 5, then you've got something that's really... That people are really valuing. Or at least... The kind of traffic you're getting is high quality traffic because the people coming into the site are people who would have a a, a need or a desire for what your service is, right? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, one thing I realized recently is that when people use the terminology SaaS software as a service, yeah, it's like really what that means is like just business. It's like it's like a subscription services, but for businesses. Yeah, right. I didn't re- I didn't quite realize like why do people use SaaS? I mean, you hear people say SaaS kind of when they're talking at business conferences or business people use it, but you don't hear people, you know, with these smaller, even pay, paid or, or, or services that they're uh, SaaS, right? It seems kind of old. It's like, it's like back in the around 2000, 2001, where people calling them uh, ASPs or application service providers. Remember that term? Yeah. Yeah, but they, you don't hear that anymore. And it seemed like software as a service was like back uh Four or five years ago, in time of like, um, was it Salesforce.com was software as a service? But but yeah. so I'm not sure I understand the distinction you're making. Like, so are you saying are you making an observation about this? Yeah, I just I just personally didn't quite realize that people were still using the term SaaS and that. Re- but really, I guess what's happened is it's not it's not it's not that it's an older term anymore, and it's not like people use it as like, oh, well, there's an antiquated way. It just of means subscription, basically. It's like it's it's very it's the very common um, startup. It, it's kind of become synonymous with bootstrapping startup kind of funky. No, no young but what tech it does companies. is it is it is it means. Um, that you're charging, and it means that it's most likely for businesses. It's a business service. It's like oh, B2B. really? It's I don't like, think I don't see that. I don't think I, of it as that. I think that's what it's. I think that's what's tending to mean now that it's that you're charging, and it's tending to be more of a B two B play. Again, so, from my perspective, I think that. I mean, once again, I could be wrong, but I think that it just means that you are building a product that is a, that is basically not downloadable. It's it's a product that you use as a subscription on a website. Yeah, well, no, that's obviously what it means. I'm just saying, like, the context when it's used. Yeah. Like, you don't hear people talking about SaaS on Hacker News. Well, I'm going to charge for my, you know, project management app, you know, or, or, or I'm going to charge for my task or, you know, app or something. It tends to just be in, in the business context. Anyway, just something I just kind okay. of noticed the other day. So um, I found I came across an interest, a couple interesting um little tools on the web uh, I, I want to point out. So there was an article called why, When Google Hates Your Name, yeah, uh, Why We I Renamed Our Startup. And um, there's two interesting, uh, it was about a startup called Locately, yeah. um, some kind of a mobile geolocation thing. Um, but what was interesting is they brought up two cool, they pointed out two cool tools or websites. One was called Wordoid, um, and the, the domain is just how you pronounce it, or um, phonetically, or how you spell it phonetically, is wordoid.com. Yeah. And what you do is you type in a word, and it will come up with all kind of variations of 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 that word that still are pronounceable as if in the English language. So, like, locate might be locately would be like one of the things that would have brought up. And um, it's kind of neat. So if you're trying to come up with a domain name um, and you have a concept, Wordoid seems pretty cool. And there's another one they uh, mentioned, which is called 
domize d-o-m-i-z-e dot com and you type in a word and it'll show you automatically all the different uh, variations dot net dot info dot us dot org that kind of stuff and it'll it'll, and also variations on that word just like shorter versions of it I I think and um, whether which ones are available or not which ones are for sale on a a, um, secondary market which I thought was kind of cool so you've got the uh, natural the almost natural and the hardly natural options Mm-hmm. I'm just playing with it. It's good. Yeah, that's kind of neat because you know coming up with a domain name just is so hard because it's just there's so many things to take into consideration. It's like if you use certain um, uh, well, I don't know what you call them like um, um, like dot biz. It's, it's yeah. not, it's not a top, it's not a top level domain. Is to, is dot biz considered called a top level domain? Is yeah. that the terminology? Yeah. Anything anything that basically doesn't have any other dots is a TLD. Okay, so. Um, yeah, dot, you know, so you use things like that, and it, it just sounds kind of, um, I don't know, lowbrow, I guess, remember? It's not, not cool, right? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't see a YC company coming out being dot biz. I don't know. Right? I think I, 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 I'm almost inclined to think that anything that isn't the norm is kind of cool. So a dot biz, if you, if you kind of had a funky name, you could make it a dot biz, you know? I don't know. I think I think it would. Uh, I think it would be like saying you listen to Britney Spears. You know, I think it would just have a fundamentally uncool <laughs> thing to it. I mean, uh, I th- I'm not. So, I'm not so sure. Well, just like dashes. Just like if you put dashes in your name. If you put dashes or use dot biz, it it just looks lame. Okay, let's let's say that you were using the dot biz as part of your branding strategy, right? To let let's say it was slightly ambiguous about whether your uh, company related to businesses or not. So then you you have you could have like some kind of funky name like like uh I don't know Twitly <laughs> and you could have twitly.biz and therefore it would be clear that it was uh, a Twitter space business thing. Yeah. You, you I, I think you're wrong. I think that most people because <laughs> if you're looking for the early adopters techno crowd Digerati to be your to be your first uh, your early adopter crowd, right? Which is who they're going which is probably what's what it's going to be. Those people are gonna are gonna look at a name like that and they're gonna think second rate, <laughs> right? Bush league, lame. I, I think. I, I think. I mean, like because I because I I almost think that I almost think that it's the opposite way around. Let's let's say for example you were going after the SMB. I mean, you were going after the money, right? Which is the small to medium businesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're talking about all the different, you know, the Fortune five million all around the globe, right? If if you if you were called uh, Twitly.io versus Twitly.biz, Twitly.biz has a little bit more believability from a business point of view. I, I disagree. I think you're going to look. I think you look fundamentally uncool doing that. But I think un- it, un- what does uncool mean? I mean, un- are you kidding me? What does uncool mean? But, uh, I mean, every, I mean, every, every whole of... world is driven by what's cool. <laughs> you know, what's everyone looking at? What's the coolest? You know, music. I don't think business decisions and like a lot uh, of business decisions are made more more on kind of uh, the the percept of st- uh, stability rather than coolness <laughs> depending okay. on the business right yeah, yeah 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 okay well to get to the point businesses use products that have some kind of of um stability behind them right, right. they actually have a user base that they've actually are around they're not just some they you know and how do you get there by having you having your early adopters right by getting early adopters and early adopters are are, are pulled into things that are cool um, that's why, you know, everybody left MySpace because it became uncool, you know, and our Friendster or whatever. People jump just like they jump from clubs or restaurants or uh, clothes or, you know, music or whatever. It's, it's just 
you know, what's new. So, what, what's so cool. basically you're saying that it would be impossible to start a, a successful company with a .biz domain name. And did I say that it would be impossible? I'm just saying it's, it's, it's uncool and it, therefore it's going to work against you. You can overcome, you can always overcome things that are bad decisions or the things that work against you with other, with lots of other good decisions. Like we've done with texting. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we had the, we, we had probably one of the ugliest websites in modern times. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and we still were able to, you know, build a listener base, but that doesn't mean that we wouldn't have built a listener base faster had people when they came across the show, came to it and it looked like a decent website. It looked like these guys are actually trying and, it Which look, it does it looks, now. It looks better. It's getting there. It definitely improved quite a bit just by using pulling in a different theme. But you know, I, you can you can grow. You can succeed in spite of bad mis- of bad decisions or doing things that are going to work against you. And and having a bad name, a bad domain name, an ugly website, all those things, you know, if they're bad enough, can work against you. And if I just be- wonder whether it's just your personal cognitive bias, right? You just personally think. Dot biz is a load of rubbish. I'll tell you what, I, you go, go find, tell me, tell me, you go find a successful new startup that's kind of in the, um, you know, let's, let's call it the Hacker News world, right? Of any of these, coming out of any of these incubators, anything that's being talked about that's a dot biz or has a dash okay, in the would you, would you find say one, that Find one. Would you say that dot US, would you say dot US like, is cool or uncool? I would say it's uncool unless they were using it as part of a name like a delicious unless they're trying to, <laughs> unless they were trying to be cute. I'm telling you. It's, it's, and why it's, can't you do the same with dot biz? Because it, it comes it comes across as lame. It comes across as really um it comes across as third rate. I'm telling you. I love you. your black and white rules. I'll bet you but you couldn't find prove me wrong. Find it find <laughs> something. Listen, I can't prove you wrong, but you know what? There's, there's, there's like a thousand people listening to this show who can help me prove you wrong. I'll tell you. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that like the .ly's and .io's and all the things won't be incredibly uncool in like three or four years from now. Just because everything goes through its periods of what's cool and what's not. It's like So you see, .biz is going to become cool? You no, know, it's never going to become cool. So you're saying .biz will never, ever be cool? Well, you, I would say never ever, but I wouldn't put my money on it. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like some things have a resurgence. Like there's these actors who are like big in the 80s and then they're just, nobody wants to see their stupid face again. And then all of a sudden they have a resurgence and like, you know, 15 years later and people are like, wow, that's kind of cool. Right. You know, that guy, but they reinvented themselves. But a lot of times what happens is you look at it and it just gives you this, uh, just reminds you of the, of what it was before. And I don't know. I mean, things go through phases things come back in style like disco was cool and then it was totally lame and then it became kind of retro and then it becomes just lame retro lame <laughs> you know things go up and down you know so did you see polymaps.org no so polymaps p-o-l-y-m-a-p-s.org is a javascript library for image and vector tiled maps using svg I looked at it. It's pretty cool. So basically, it's um, essentially giving you the power of Google Maps type of stuff. A uh, very, very nice API. So if you want to, if you want to kind of uh, get some IP and build some hardcore mapping stuff in your app, that Polymaps is something worth looking at. So, but can't you use like Google Maps automatically? Yeah, you can. You you can basically embed, and it's an interesting thing. Like Google, Google has a whole bunch of uh, stuff that's available via APIs. Mm-hmm. And um, widgets and JavaScript widgets. But question is, if you use those stuff, if you sorry, if you use those things available from from Google and other companies like that, how do you build your own IP into your own business? 
you know so essentially it's it's all google's ip right so where does your right. own business start developing its ip i don't know i mean does it even matter well I, does I your ip I, even matter i mean what does it matter as long as you get people using your site because a lot of these sites a lot of these sites i mean their ip is questionable anyway it's just it's just they they used off the shelf frameworks and they used very standard type of uh, business concepts and they have like 30 people in their space they just kind of they made a pretty site and have done a good job you know marketing it and doing customer support so there's okay, really boot, not much IP. bootstrapping i don't think ip matters so much but don't you think that if you're going down the funded route, the IP is important to investors? And that basically, well, you know, bar- bar- barriers to entry, uh, having something different to the competition, don't you think that's important to the vest- investors? Well, at least the perception of it. At least you can sort of somehow sell it to them. I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm sort of not a big believer in this whole, like, defensible competitive advantage and stuff like that. I think that stuff is mostly BS. I think it's the kind of stuff, even when they talk about companies that have that, it just... I don't know. It doesn't really strike me as true all the time. Um, yeah, sure. If you can sell it, if you can tell, if you can get a bunch of investors to believe that you have this gr- incredible IP that nobody can replicate, you know, great. Sure. But that's yeah. nuts because everything you build, you, you know, you always reinvent the wheel. So you always have IP in what you do. So you'd kind of never go down. You'd never go down the route of well, using well, a Google API. Well, I wouldn't do the, I wouldn't use terms like always and never. <laughs> I would right. say with App Ignite, I clearly built my own, you know, framework and ORM and everything for sure. And I, you know, I have definitely built my own libraries and stuff. So build, but, building your, but building your own ORM, what, why did you build your own ORM? Let, let me ask that question before you do. You built it because you need something more powerful, more flexible than available on the marketplace, right? Yeah, all the things that I tried, I downloaded and experimented with about five to seven of the ORMs available at the time, you know, a year ago or so, and, and PHP, because I wanted to use PHP. And uh, nothing I found, either I could get it to work <laughs> or had any documentation to support it when and uh, or both. And the ones that did kind of work just still weren't supporting some of the things that I needed it to do. And so it's like if I don't have control over it and the code is really complex, it's like there's one or two of them that had just, you know, reams and reams and so- reams of so I was like, how, how was I going to get in and fix it, make a change? If I but, could, li- but listen, no one else can get their hands on that, right? And that makes your product better. So wouldn't you call that a defensible piece of IP right there? I guess so. Project? But, you know, it's like if I can do it, then somebody else can do it. You know, it's like, yeah, I may think, hey, I'm pretty smart and I'm a good developer and I created something that's hard to replicate. But it doesn't mean that you know, a few, few smart guys who, you know, they could use a variety of technologies to try and do what I did, you know, and they can, I'm just saying, you they're know. They're not even going to know what you did because they're not going to get their hands on the code. They're not going to see the code. I mean, your, your ORM system's working in the background, right? Yeah, but I mean, so they could, how could, how could they, uh, you know. It's uh, kind of funny that we're arguing. I'm, I'm arguing against my defensibility. That's here. right. You're arguing against, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> so <laughs> it's crazy. Like, we'll it, right? I mean, yeah, I do think I've created something that has some defensibility, but I, I, I think it's, it's always hard to say that, well, nobody else could do what I did. You know, it's like, it's a pretty arrogant and probably incorrect position to take. Oftentimes it's rare that there aren't some other smart people who could do do what you did now chances are if you but they do have something- to know what you did so that's so what, that's that's one of the things like i that the whole thing of ip is that it's well not the whole thing but one of the big parts of it is if it's if it's private and if people can't actually see the magic source they, then they don't even know what it's doing so therefore that's a big part of why it's oh. defensible Okay, well, what's interesting is that if the thing about websites, though, like web stuff, is you can see what it does. 
right? You can just go through and, and, and you can, like, if, I, if you say, well, I want to build a, a Facebook clone like Diaspora, right? right? They can just go in and use it. They don't have to see the code. They go, okay, well, we got friends and we got messages and we got comments and we got this and these are the kind of relationships and we want to do this. Yeah, they might not know some of the things they did to help scale it, and, but they can figure that along the way. Now, if it's something that's a black box behind the, behind the system, so if there's some company that's making billions of dollars with some kind of proprietary trading algorithms, it's really hard to, to figure out or even know what they could possibly be doing. Mm-hmm. Just have no idea. Now, but that's not true with software. You can just go and use it. In fact, I think most coders would say, you know what, I don't even want to see the code. Just let me look at it and I can figure out and I'll reverse engineer it. You know, no, they won't even reverse engineer it. I can just, just I mean, just look at it, right? But you know, something like, like an ORM like, doesn't fall into that category, right? Oh, because it's complicated enough that it's hard to know what it's doing? Well, it's just, it, it, it's just you, you're seeing a website on the front end, but the ORM is working in the back, the back end just dealing with low-level abstracted data connections, which, I mean, there's no way you can tell how that's working or what it's doing from using the website. Oh, yeah, right. You, you're right. That is true. You couldn't. Um, and you're right. I mean, believe me, I've fought and sweated through this thing for the past year, and there and it is really a lot of hard work, and there's been a lot of pain, and there's probably a lot of people who would have tried to do this in a month or two months or three years, months in would just said, screw it, this is a, just a So if, if you're an investor listening to the show and you're thinking about investing in Jason, I can tell you, even though he doesn't understand it, he actually has defensible IP in his project. <laughs> I, 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 I'm just saying, I just, I, I'm just saying, just in general, I'm just not a, a big a believer. Yeah, there are things that are easier and, thing, and harder to replicate. For sure. Okay, sorry, I'm just picking on you. Yeah. Okay. So, um, moving on. Uh, I got a. I, I came across a good quote. Uh, I think what I'll have be the uh, quote of the week. Yeah. Um, and it was part of like a. I think it was on a, a discussion forum of some kind. And and uh, so I, I don't know if I can attribute to something. Although it might be on Google, we could probably Google it. But it says, if you aren't paying for a product, then you are the product. So, for instance, if you're getting something for free, they're just aggregating to sell information about you, right? I see. I thought that was kind of kind of cute. Mm, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, that's nice. Yeah. So okay, so I saw another one that was just this morning that was cool. It says Chrome Chrome Seven will get sixty times faster, according to mm, Google. Yeah, I saw that. That's that is interesting. Bloody hell, that's amazing. So essentially, what they're doing is um, they're going to f- um, leverage the power of the graphic the graphics processor unit or the GPU. Yeah. For doing, I think specifically for doing uh, graphics work. So if you're doing 2D and 3D um, work, so video games can be really high-end video games can be in the browser. Mm. Um, and But also, like, scientific calculations are often, you know, can be changed so that they use graphics primitives. So, for instance, you know, five or, you know, maybe three or four or five years ago, um, some companies were starting to experiment with with doing that like they they realized they had some of these very powerful powerful graphics processors in fact there were a number of stories of some some professors who had taken um like eight i think xboxes or sony or playstations or whatever and bought them you know used and just hooked them all together and used the graphics uh the gpus in there to create like a supercomputer mm-hmm. for like five grand or something like that and what it turned out is that well the the gpus that are in these um consoles are not too different from the gpus that are on some of these high-end graphics cards that all these you know gamers use that so therefore you could just use your pc but then leverage the power of the gpus so i guess you know um google is kind of 
realize that they can leverage that too. But so what that means is not only for video game developers, you know, we, rather than having these sort of simple, hey, look, I created Donkey Kong in a browser or Tetris. People are like, okay, neat. You know, that's kind of cool. Next, it's like they can you can actually create you know first person shooters and things real-time, you know, StarCraft type of stuff, Hmm. um, which would be really neat because then that changes what that will allow us for people to want to start playing these games and be able to get into it. The barrier to entry is quick, much simpler because you don't have to uh, go and download and install stuff. You just, like, log into a website and start playing a game. That's great. And then I guess if Chrome gets onto some of the mobile platforms, does that help out from that point of view as well? Or or do they not have the GPU... uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I did say in the article, and I don't know much about the graphics architecture of these um, smartphones, but I imagine that there is some kind of graphics processor in there. And if there isn't, there will be soon because, you know, people play games a big, you know, I, I think the iPad and iPhones are turning into big gaming platforms for people, mm, aren't they? Well, some of the games I've seen on the iPad have been pretty impressive. Yeah, so there must be something there. I'm mm-hmm. sure some of our listeners are we're probably, you know, maybe they're well aware of it. But uh, but the other thing is that, you know, I was talking about building the um, the quantifier, that sort of like data, uh, web web analytics. You were already uh, saying that was much faster on Chrome, I think. Uh, it was like, you know, just this wasn't using, obviously leveraging any GPU stuff, but it was like 10 times, eight, eight, I think it was about eight. Most of my genetic algorithm, uh, neural net calculations, pure numerical stuff was about eight, 0.5 times faster than the latest version of Firefox. Mm. And, and, but that was on the PC as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it was on the PC. I haven't tried it on the Mac. You, you should know. check it on the Mac. I bet you, I bet you find it's even, even bigger. Interesting. But um, so the other point about this is that, so for doing sort of like powerful things in the browser, like uh, d- analytics uh, work, it, if uh, you could probably leverage the GPU stuff too. So That'd be great. Because, because you know, when I'm building this um, this neural net library or this AI stuff, data analytics, you might say, "Well, no, it's stupid. Why would you do it? You should build in C or or at least Java or maybe Python. It runs on some powerful server. It's down to in JavaScript." It's like, well, eventually, and maybe much sooner than people think, the browser is going to be just as powerful or so close to being as powerful as what you run natively on your system that it doesn't make a difference and that you have all of the amazing benefits of having a web solution as opposed to having people have to download and install stuff. Well, that's, I, I, I really hope that that happens because um, obviously in developing Swarm, you know, my, and having developed it with HTML, CSS, JavaScript, I'm just hoping that that, that can move to all of the platforms. I mean, I'd love it if that could get onto the Xbox and, and the PlayStation. I don't know whether that's possible, but uh, you know that would be an interesting thought. Do you play? Uh, do you do you play games on consoles? I've I, I, not currently, but I mean I have played uh, you know a lot of games on consoles in my life, and I don't think that that I mean the games that are available on consoles are infinitely slicker than what I've done in the CSS and HTML world. So well, you don't. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you've done everything that needs to be done for a board game. Yeah, exactly. Right. For, I mean, for a board game, I think it's kind of a, a special case scenario. Although, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. So you don't need, but you're not a big game. You're not a big video gamer per se, right? You don't play first person shooter, strat, real time strategy stuff. I used to. I used to really love those games when they first started coming out. The World of Warcraft kind of games. You know, where, hap- you, where you build up your empire. Well, what happened was I realized that so many, so much time was getting sucked away, right? So I was spending, I was just wasting so much of my life playing these games. So that it, it's, a, <laughs> it's a great kind of reality to get into. But all of a sudden, you know, you realize, God, I could be, I could be doing a lot 
more productive stuff with my I time. feel like, yeah, I, I, I I fell into it for a little bit back in the in when Doom and Conquer and um, Command and Conquer. Mm-hmm. Same as me, yeah. yeah. And I lost weeks, if not months, of my life just literally playing games all day long. I mean, we were doing it at our, our startup. We would just say, all right, let's just start with a game of Command and Conquer, right? This one mm-hmm. challenge game, right? And then we'll get working. And then you get mad at each other because you thought the guy pulled a you know bullshit move. And so you'd be like, all right, you know, one more rematch. And then it'd be lunchtime. And then you'd argue over lunch about tactics the whole time. And then you'd start one, one more game. And the next thing you know, it'd be time to leave. It'd be dinner time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was like, this is, you know, but it took a while to break out of it to realize, all right, I'm not doing this anymore. This is, this is just, uh, this is bad. And it's fun to do it, but it just makes you feel terrible and it screws up your life. And I, I think it's kind of like, it's like probably like alcohol or drugs or anything like that. I mean, there are people who can drink and take drugs recreationally and don't have problems. But I personally had a hard time just, you know, playing like one game and stopping. The one, right? the one that was, um, really addictive for me was Unreal Tournament. Yeah. Did you ever play that? Never, never did. Because especially, I, I don't know, I really like the sniper rifle. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, so in the, the, the work that I had at the time, um, there was, I guess, like eight of us who would play every day after work. Mm-hmm. And the games would just go on for two hours. And I would just always try and find a little hidey hole and then go there with my sniper rifle and zoom in to like a magnification of 200 and just shoot them in the head. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I tell you, the first time that I played um, Doom and we had on our network, this is not long after it came out, so it was really early on, and we're running around in some cavern. I see see my buddy Mitchell, and I actually see him turn and look at me. And Mm. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to shoot him. This is awesome, right? (laughs) I was like shooting your friend and like it was like the most awesome thing. I I mean, so yeah, I became like addicted to it for, you know, a month or two. And I did the same thing in college. I fell into the Tetris trap. Do you ever play Tetris much? Yeah. Um, I'll tell you when I played that on was, um, and I'm really showing my age here, like basically the early Game Boys. Like that was pretty addictive on those Game Boys because you could just play it on the bus. You could play it wherever. You could play on the abacus. <laughs> it was like this abacus-like thing we used back before. Well, I don't know what that, like an abacus. What, what do you mean? T- t- talk me through the abacus. <laughs> Isn't an abacus like a little thing with beans that you slide across? That's what they used to use in like China, you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago, or probably even not, you know, up till maybe, uh, you know, till there were calculators. Is there a way of playing like, Tetris on an abacus? No, I'm just saying something oh. like a Tetris. You move beans around. <laughs> <laughs> that would so, be cool if there was because you know the way that you can play Tetris in a building if you turn the lights on and off in a huge big office block have right. you seen that you've seen those kind of videos right I haven't but that's uh, that makes sense well I, I know I would see it in my I close my eyes and I would see Tetris blocks yeah I know that that's I the Tetris effect yeah the Tetris effect you'd be walking around and, and you'd see Tetris blocks everywhere mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a nightmare well I my freshman year in college in, is when Tetris came out and anybody who had a Mac in their room, and we had a Mac in the room, would have two or three people around it playing Tetris at any given time. Like, I would literally be in my room studying. Would, be, like, would people be thinking. giving other people advice? Like, turn it remember. this way. Turn it that way. Yeah, not really so much. But what would happen is I, would, I had a Mac back in the day, back in you know, one of those old, you know, whatever, the first or second versions of the Mac. And I would be sitting, I'd be lying on my bed, say, reading for a class or something. And people would come in, hey, Jay, I'm going to use your computer to play Tetris. And I'm like, yeah, sure, fine. You know, so people would be in my room playing Tetris constantly. You know, sometimes there'd be there, you know, somebody standing behind and waiting for their turn. And you'd see it everywhere. And I'm like, I'm not playing. I'm not even going to touch that thing. So I was really good for, you know, to just never even play it because I saw how addictive it was to everybody. But then my senior year, I was taking um, 
I was taking a couple classes in Scheme that I needed for my um, for to get my BA in math. I had to take a couple comp sci classes, and so you'd be in the like computer uh, science lab where you could use the, uh, the you know they had a whole lab of Macs you would use, mm-hmm. and of course they had Tetris on there, and it became my nightmare. Like I would go to do all right. I'm just going like before lunch after my classes. I'm just spend a couple hours. I'm going to get some of my problem sets done, you know my comp sci problem sets, and I just spend the whole time spend the whole time playing Tetris. It was a nightmare, so I just avoid it now. I hey, don't what do you what do you thinking of your Mac now? Because I don't, wait, wait, how many weeks have you had it now? I don't know what two, three. Okay, so, well, what's the what's the verdict? Well, so far? I'm, I'm getting used to it. I'm getting used to it. I mean, you know, uh, the first time we talked, I was just in the middle of, of hell because I, I had spent a week configuring and s- installing and trying to learn software and just not being productive because I could get any work done because I didn't have my tools in place. Mm-hmm. And then when I did get the tools in place, the keyboard wasn't, I wasn't familiar with the keyboard or the shortcuts and stuff. And so I was like 2% productivity and I was just like pulling my hair out. I was just like, it's getting so upset about the whole situation. So now I have enough tools that I'm productive enough with, and I've been using Komodo Edit, and I, as an editor, I like it. That works pretty well. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with it. You know, I'm, I'm getting to the point where I'm fine. Someone had said that Komodo was like a couple of hundred dollar thing, but you, you've got Komodo Edit, which is like a, a, little, a little piece you can take from it, and it's free, right? Well, there's Komodo IDE, which is like, Two hundred and ninety-five dollars, not okay. three hundred, but two ninety-five. Two ninety-five, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, then there's and then there's the Komodo Edit, which is just the same thing, except it just doesn't have some of the IDE features, like you know, if you're, you know, uh, you know, your call stacks and watch variables and stepping through your code and debugging, it doesn't have any of that kind of stuff. But if you're just editing stuff, which you know, I think Komodo, they have like a debugger and everything built in for like PHP and Python and a variety of languages. And I was going to install an experiment with that. Um, and I think I started to a little bit, but I just, at the point I was just, I, I, I just reached my limit on how much I wanted to experiment and install and configure software. I just was like, screw it. I'm just going to write some code for a while and I'll, I'll maybe come back to this in a month and to change my, change my uh, workflow. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think Alex uh, Gimmel, your buddy. Yeah. Um, from what, you know, is that right? You guys yeah, worked at for, for back we in work, We worked together in what, you know, and also first consult. Yeah, so he he was like he said a let a comment. He's like Jason, I'm pulling my hair out listening to you. He's like use Eclipse or use uh, EDP. It's awesome. <laughs> it's so frustrating. I can so. I can just imagine Alex pulling his hair out and the face that he has on him. He's he's yeah, a funny to, guy. I'm gonna get Alex. He sounds funny. We're gonna have to have him on. Yeah. Uh, maybe we'll have him on as a weekend just discussion guest, and we'll just kind of shoot. Alex, like uh, you should you should come on the show on the weekend. I've, we've sent him an email to that effect. He just needs to let us know when's a good time. Wasn't he supposed to come on a few weeks ago, and then mm-hmm. what happened? Um, I think it fell through. I'm not sure why. Yeah, well, we'll try and get him on because I have a I, uh, my uh, buddy Phil, who's a really funny guy. He was a, my co-founder of my first company. And I'd like to have him on. He's a he did a bunch of improv comedy. He did a bunch of Second City stuff and a bunch of Groundling stuff here in LA. He's so he's a really funny guy. You've right. met him. Right? Yeah, he's good. He's very funny. So we'll it would get him on too. He would make the show make the show really entertaining, I think. So all right, well let's uh let's switch it up. Um what you got next? Um Don't tell me so you're already was, out of Don't tell something... me you're already out of <laughs> no, no, I've got loads. <laughs> um there was something that was kind of good which is um okay, I, I didn't read it in full detail, but I think that it's worth people looking at. It's top of hacker news right now as we speak. How to go from idea to launching with paying customers in eight steps. Wait, that's what you have? I have trouble with diaspora. Oh, well, it was... It was top oh, of you're at number two. I'm like, maybe you're still seeing the wrong stuff because you're still banned. 
<laughs> it just shows you a random collection. It actually, it shows band users like all the stuff that had one point. It gives it like fake high points. So you're reading all this really bad stuff going, why is Hacker News Is suck? it a number two on Hacker News now? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, you're so, so basically, it's, it's just a kind of detailed list of um, eight steps to moving from launch to paying customers. But I'm, I mean, I, I had a quick read through it. I don't think it's, uh, let's say, the most perfect advice in the world but it's certainly something that's worth looking at. Well, what are they? Let's go through them. Okay. Um, have you got it open? I'm looking at it. I'm waiting for you. Okay, well, you start. Yeah, you lead the way. You're the one who read it. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't read it, did you? <laughs> no, I did. I did. You did? Uh, okay. okay. Well, so, so, so step one, define the problem. Okay. All right. There you go. Define the problem. Step two... <laughs> <laughs> create your high-level overview, specifications, and mock-ups. Okay. That seems pretty obvious, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's going to be obvious, isn't it? It's, well, it, like, it's just going to be obvious. Three, your initial, three is initial customer feedback and validation. So that's the one thing that people don't tend to do, but, we, you know, it's been talked about ad nauseum on Hacker News and our, our show and everything, which is, like, before which you... Is, which is something that I recently did with a, a, a new idea that I had. <laughs> Right. What was that idea? <laughs> okay, so the idea was, you, you know the way that um, Posturus yeah. and a few other websites are allowing you to send emails and you can blog. So right. I, I, I had the thought, well, maybe a lot of website owners would want people to be able to email stuff into their website, to post content, to control their website, etc. So I thought, well, how about you just created a website where we deal with all the heavy lifting of accepting the emails and then... Um, passing those emails through rules and then passing them to some APIs of, of, the, of the person's website. So in other words, you could sign up to this website. My, my concept was to call it Email God because it was so good at dealing with email. Dot, dot biz. <laughs> email God <laughs> dot biz. That's why you're so <laughs> defensive about the dot biz being lame. <laughs> well, because I, the, the reason why I selected dot biz in that mock-up that I sent you was just once again to show that it was a business relate. It was a B2B product. That was the only reason, right? <laughs> and it's, it's, it's that all the lame business people would, would, would be like, oh, it's lame just like us. <laughs> So anyway, so I so I sent I, I sent this concept right this mock up that basically what this is is it takes the incoming email and then it maps it to APIs on your site so you can use it and I sent it out to a, a few different uh, entrepreneurs such as Wait, and by the way before you get into that yeah I I, I had mentioned almost the same thing between like building an application app and not using email right and you, you didn't did. think it was too good of an idea you told me you thought it was kind of dumb well I did, I listen I didn't even know whether this was a good idea I just wanted to okay. mock, I just wanted to mock it up as an ex, as an exercise just as I an just want to know I just want people to know that you that you told me it was a bad idea you just expanded the concept <laughs> and think it's a good idea so you're a flip flopper so, so I mailed it out to a few of the, the the kind of entrepreneurs that we've spoken to and everyone said back and basically said nope what a load of rubbish that is, that is <laughs> it's lame. completely unuseful and if i was going to do it i'd build it myself so i was why like why don't you say look i think the problem was within the name instead of email god.biz say now it's like email godly <laughs> God, not email godly.us yeah or no emaily <laughs> emaily.com emaily emaily send it out again and see whether they like it and they're all going to be like yeah that's amazing I think. So everybody thought it was stupid. Uh, they just basically didn't see huge value in it. And there they was also the security, the security issues because essentially you'd have to remap your MX records, right? So um, 
It wasn't and, a good idea. Well, know you know what was are, great? I didn't people... have to do anything else except for create a mock-up and get some market feedback. And the whole cycle of the business from beginning to end lasted less than a day. And I'm now going to call, I think I'm going to christen this a flash business, like a, like a flash, like, you know, when you throw some oil into a boiling pan, mm-hmm. right? So the business, you, you can get through the whole cycle of the business from just conception to closing it down <laughs> well, did... before you even start. Well, you know, you might say, is that if everybody, because I, I, I remember reading something one time who said that, you know, if everyone thinks it's a bad idea, it's probably a good idea. Oh, really? It's just, it's just like, it's one of those things that no one quite understands yet, because a lot of the really good ideas at first sound as stupid to everybody, especially people who are smart and in the know, because it kind of broke some patterns. Um, and, I, you know, I'm just throwing out there to be a contrarian, I guess. But, um, you know, like when, when you first... Uh, maybe maybe like social networks or maybe blogging like blogging people it's like oh, who wants to hear you you know people blog right a bunch of you know non-professionals write about stupid you know writing their pajamas or you know it's like twitter who cares about like you know what you're eating for lunch well obviously all those things took off so but those, lo- those are consumer related things whereas this is specifically a b2b system it's like a widget that helps that would help websites allow their customers to email in and control their site and change their settings and post content. So mm-hmm. I think that you know, when you speak it's to like, business owners and they don't like it, it's, they're probably giving yeah. you the correct it's, feedback. It's like email version of Telnet. Yeah. It's like really, really slow Telnet. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe if what happens is if everybody without exception thinks it's a bad idea then you have to take pause and wonder why they all think it's a bad idea. If they think it's a bad idea because it's so different that they don't understand it, you know, or if it's like, if like most people think it's bad, but a few people kind of think it's good, then it probably just is bad. Yeah. <laughs> but if it's so bad that everybody hates it, you might be, I might be onto something here. Okay, so initial customer feedback and validation, step three. <laughs> step four, be an axe murderer. What does what? that mean? You're probably doing too much, even with the simple initial spec. So basically what they're saying is is to just oh, that, whittle away a, all of your concepts. Well, there's a saying, kill your darlings. Yeah, murder right. your darlings, like in writing. Like, yeah. they, 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 like writing is rewriting, is a saying. I think like writing is rewriting. And when you rewrite, to really do a good job of, 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 of that, you have to, even if you spend you know, hours or days laboring over passages and characters or even some plot lines, you, sometimes you just have to kill them. You have to murder your darlings. That's what that step. Counts. Step five is a bit contentious. Detailed specifications. Oh, I don't know. That, that, doesn't, seem to, that doesn't seem to fit with a lean, mean startup machine. Yeah, I don't. See, the thing is, I mean, you know, some people are great at like writing up business plans. I love to write specs. I mean, I wouldn't if if I had to do that stuff. I wouldn't build anything. It takes mm-hmm. all the fun out of it. Keeps all. It takes all the wind out of my sails. I want to build stuff, and yeah. so if I have to sit down and do all this meta work, it's just. I mean, it's just not going to happen for me. You know, if you're if you're a spec writer, if you're someone who likes to write business plans or likes to write likes to plan stuff, I just I just hate it. I just I like, don't know why you need them. If you've got decent mind maps of the structure and the technical structure. And you've got decent mock-ups. What you know? Why do you need to go into? I mean, that's and and you're building it in an agile approach. You know, so it's basically got an emergent design behind it. See, why I don't do even you, use that. I don't even do. I don't. Even, the only maps I have are in my mind. I never wrote down anything. I don't draw anything. That that has to be the title of the show. The only maps I have are in my mind. That's right. Yes, yeah, so I don't. I don't do any of that. I never do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I remember it's like funny. It's like people. It's like. When I was first doing COM, do you know what COM is? The COM object model on Windows? Yeah. 
I yeah, do, so yeah. when you're doing all C++ and they came up with COM and you know, so also before that was known as object OLE or object linking embedding and anyway they'd always say well you, what you have to do is you have to fully design all your interfaces in IDEL or something I, uh, interface definition language Yeah, and you'd find these interfaces completely it's like uh, who codes like that are you serious like I'm supposed to just like write these interfaces a and friend these of mine John does change. actually a friend of mine John he always codes with he writes the whole thing out in UML before, because he he basically doesn't want to waste any coding until he's done until he's done the whole UML. Yeah, see, I, you know, I think it's just like different styles, right? I mean, some people come at problems in different ways. Some people like me are sort of like just you start with something small, you add on, you play with it, you build, and just keep adding on, right? You just grow it organically. Where some people they take a step back and they and they try and take a high level view and they try and ask themselves all kind of questions and then they want to like write all these specs out and they do all this stuff and they just kind of it's closer to a waterfall thing mm-hmm. um and uh they they're comfortable with that i don't i hate doing that stuff and so i just don't do it and obviously i found a style works for me and but what happens is like there's these sort of sea shifts and like you know what happens is that you know, all of a sudden things come into favor, like, oh, you have to do it this way. You have to do test-driven development. You have to do this, you know. And for some people, it works great, and they love it. Like, oh, I changed my life doing it this way. But you know, what happens is it sort of makes other people who don't work that way start to second-guess themselves and, and, and then sometimes try and fit a square peg in a round hole by trying to work a way that doesn't work in a way that does not work for them. So this guy's step six is most people's step one. His step six is build it. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, screw it. I'm just like, build something simple. Play around, have fun, build something simple. See if you think it's there's anything to it after that. And if there is, maybe show a few people, talk to some people about it, you know, then validate. You know, yeah. I think one thing I think is really, the only thing that I think is really useful in that, because I think, I think, yeah, that's one way to do it, is build something and, 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 then, and then go out and start talking and showing some people. Now, obviously, with App Ignite... Well, um, there's still te- step seven and step eight. Oh, geez, Okay. So step seven is test for critical mishaps internally and with confidence. <laughs> step seven, okay. that is, okay. which I've never done, right? Step eight is launch it. Now, the interesting thing is it's launch it, but the, 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 and that's the last step. But the post is how to go from idea to launching with paying customers in eight steps. What the? Nobody's paying there. Like, how do you, how do you, that's. That that's the miracle make, function. Yeah, that's the miracle There's, function. Then a miracle <laughs> happens and you think customers. <laughs> oh, we just launch it. And all of a sudden we've got paying customers. Yeah, I think he forgot step nine. Mm-hmm. He needed nine steps or ten steps. I think he probably just ran out of time and wanted to, wanted to was sick of writing and said, I'll just take a bit at eight. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> nobody noticed that I forgot the, the paying part. But the guy, John Baptiste, the guy who wrote it, is, um, he's like a pretty smart guy. He's doing some interesting stuff. Maybe we should, I think he's someone we should invite on the show. Well, now we've just slacked him off. I don't think he's going to come. No, it's fine. We'll just ask him what was step nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you forgot step nine. Yeah, um, it's not like we don't give other people a hard time on the show, right? Yeah. Um, so, all right. I've got, right. I've got something else I want to talk about. Yeah. I think we should do a daily morning show. Oh, well, I'd love to do a daily morning show, assuming that uh, I don't know exactly how I'm going to pay the bills doing that. I think <laughs> I, I hope that I just hope that one day we get enough listeners that we could just do maybe a couple of hours every morning. Just basically chatting like this. Yeah. Do you think that's a possibility? I don't know. You know, I think if we built up, if if we doing it twice a week as we are, we build up to, uh, you know, 20,000 listeners, something in that ballpark. 
maybe. Yeah. As as John C. Dvorak said on uh, was at episode fifty of our show. He yeah. he said you know when we asked him what's traction. He said he kept saying you know you got to get traction. And I asked him I said well what what how many listeners is traction? What would you consider? And he said oh, twenty thousand. So maybe we get twenty thousand just to pick a number. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know maybe we had that we could you know then get some kind of revenue out of the show enough to, so that we would wouldn't feel like we're completely slacking off to do the morning show. Okay, so that it's, it's not going to happen anytime soon, then, right? Because we're no, still we're still no. going for our we we haven't got the thousand listener mark yet, but we're we're hoping to get that by when? Is it by the end of the year? I think I think well, I, I, you know, what's something I threw out there before I begin the summer. I think I said I wanted I, th- I thought a good goal for us was to get five hundred downloads of a discussion show within a week mm-hmm. by the end of the summer, and by the end of the year get to a thousand. Yeah. So that we essentially more than doubled our uh, listener base over the summer. And so we just need to double it again over the next three months. Easy. I don't know if it's easy. What it is is it's trench warfare, which is like the same thing for any startup. Because we're essentially, this is like a startup that just doesn't make any money. Yeah. <laughs> right? Is that you have to fight for every user, every listener, right? I mean, we have to, just picking up five and ten at a time, you don't get them for free. We have to, like, try and create good shows, and we have to try and get track, you know, get some kind of... Um, uh, I don't know what's it called? I don't know public um, awareness, you know, via Hacker News and things like that. We have to get good guests. We we basically have to. The, the whole thing has to be a quality product from the word go. Like the the website has to be quality, the audio has to be quality, the content has to be quality. So it's like you have to kill them with quality. Yeah, you know exactly. And um, there's two things I want to say about that actually, which is that um, right. You know, there are all these different things that we can make better, right? We make the audio better, which is something you've been focusing on. It's continually iterating on the audio, on the recording, on the post-production to make it a little continually a, a, a better um, listening experience. And then it's, of course, you know, I, one thing I've been trying to do is improve on my interviewing style. Right. Which I think Dan Felipe, I think that's yeah. the thing. He kind of <laughs> comment. He's like, Jason, you got to like, you're you're not, I think he, I think he said that I was, not allowing them to answer. I was interjecting my opinions before I asked the question. Right. So I was kind of leading the witness. Yeah. And something Phil had pointed out to me, uh, my buddy Phil, he said, you know, you just, your, your wind up is too long on some of your questions and you're, and you're answering the question for them. So all they can say is, yeah, I agree. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I've been trying to work on that. Obviously, uh, you know, I'm an amateur and I'm learning, but it's getting better things like that, becoming a better interviewer, you know, knowing how to pace the interviews differently, yeah, whatever. I mean, we, we try and make it better and then we try and get better, sh- better guests and everything. I'm sorry. Well, I say one other thing about it, I, I'd say actually the two points I want to make about it. One is I was uh, emailing with, uh, exchanged a couple emails yesterday with uh, Gabriel Weinberg from DuckDuckGo. Oh, yeah. Guest, and I just pointed out, I just, po- I just emailed him the, um, a link to the write-up in uh, Read Write Web, which he hadn't seen, about um, Startups versus Goliath, which talked about DuckDuckGo. Yeah. And he hadn't seen it, and I said, yeah, I guess our, our sort of hook worked. And and he, he said something like, yeah, I just, you know, I, I wonder what it's going to take to get the mainstream press to to give him some attention. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what, you know, you, the old saying I think applies is just, you know, be so good they can't ignore you. Yeah, that's what Peldy says. Yeah, and I think, is that right, does that, and that's where I got that? Okay, so that's right. I mean, I think in DuckDuckGo, he's doing a really good job, and I think eventually that'll happen. And the other thing I was going to say is that it brought up an article that I wanted to discuss, which we can segue into, um, about succeeding. But go ahead, and you had a 
something wonderful. Well, I was going to say we've got some. We're thinking about some good uh, guests that we've we've got. We've kind of got this this theory that we want to bring on people who we're really really interested in. And essentially, if we're interested in them, we think that probably you guys are going to be interested in them. And so, someone that we're uh, lining up is Derek Sivers. Yeah, well, he Derek Sivers, uh, surprisingly, I guess he he agreed to be on the show. I haven't we haven't confirmed the time for next week, so mm-hmm. you know um, it's a little risky to talk about it first. But that should happen. Um, yeah, well, because he you know he's got a lot of attention. He's he's got he's he's spoken at TED conference and stuff. So sometimes the people who are sort of really well known and have sort of a big following don't always um, want to be interviewed on smaller podcasts because I guess they feel like it's not a good use of their time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but think about. Derek is he seems like a really nice guy, really generous guy, just like John C. Dvorak. John C. Dvorak plays the curmudgeon on Cranky Geeks and stuff, but mm-hmm. he's but he's actually a really nice guy. And the fact that he agreed to be interviewed on our show was just you know purely generous. I mean, it was just a favor. It was just being nice. Yeah, you know, he could have done anything with his day. He didn't need to do it. He has like five of his own podcasts that have a you know three or three orders of magnitude bigger than ours. So. You know, sometimes if you email people who are just really generous, they'll say, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do it. So, Open out the little guy. Yeah, you know, spread the love. Um, so, uh, you know, right, Derek Sivers is one. And the, the, the one thing where I think is the truest path is, is picking, is interviewing people who we find who we fundamentally interesting. interesting. I yeah. mean, you know, we can say, well, I think people will like this. I'm not interested in it. I think that's a mistake. And I, you hear that with writers and people who, who do creative stuff all the time. Whenever they, they, The way they get lost is they don't write true to themselves. They don't write something or create something that they would think was really interesting. They're just trying to throw something out there that, they think that will make money that other people like. And I think you get lost that way. You know, Steven Spielberg is famous for saying that. That I think someone had said, asked him back, this is around, I think, the release of Jurassic Park, like, you know, how does he come up with all these, why are some of his, his movies so successful? And he's like, I just make movies that I would want to see. You know? So uh, one of the things that... Um from getting from being on Hacker News, a few people mentioned on Hacker News that that we should have transcripts, and of course we can't afford transcripts. But then someone had the bright idea: maybe we should put up a wiki. So we've put up a wiki. Um, I, I'm having a bet with Jason. Jason thinks that nothing's going to happen to the wiki, but I'm just giving you the address anyway. It's textinglive.com forward slash wiki. And if anyone does anything on that wiki, uh, that'll be interesting. Justin, to see. I tell you what: if if, if we get a, if we get a full transcript out of it, Justin, I'll buy you dinner. <laughs> Prove me wrong. Make me buy Justin dinner. <laughs> the, yeah, I, I don't think a transfer. And I'm limiting it to ten dollars. So when I say dinner, I mean like in and out. I mean, who the hell's gonna seriously spend take their day to transcribe you and me talking for an hour and a half? I don't know. They could just <laughs> they could just you know have you stating the titles and me going blah. But it, blah. I mean, the wiki doesn't just have to be for tra- you know for for transcription. I mean, it could also be for. I don't know, outlining some of the things that we talk about and just the general concepts of the show. Who yeah. knows? Hey, listen, if you, if you like to document things, <laughs> go to textinglive.com forward slash wiki and, and write some stuff in there. Well, we'll experiment with it. We'll see. We'll see. But how don't be a smart ass, <laughs> which I'm sure you will be. Right. Okay. So, um, listen, let's move on. Um, I think we've okay. had it. So the, um, one thing I was going to say is interesting. This is an older article that kind of got repo- reposted yeah. and it was called the single most important secret to success. And, uh, you know, it was posted like back in March. I'd, I started reading and I'm like, because it popped up in Hacker News. I'm like, wait a minute, I read this before. <laughs> yeah, that's a weird feeling. Sometimes you're reading something and it's so familiar and then you're halfway through it and you're just like, oh, yeah. And the, the one point of it, the, the key point was the sum of your successes must be greater than or equal to the sum of your failures, right? So you can screw up 
a number of things and still succeed. It's just that you have to have more successes than failures. And that's what I was saying about like our podcast, which is like our, our website can be incredibly ugly and hard to navigate and not work very well. But if we're doing other things well enough, it's not going to kill it. It's not going to help us. But, you know, so you, what you want to do, obviously, is try and shore up all those weaknesses, make the auto quality better, or make the website better, whatever. But I just thought that was interesting. Uh, I, a good point, you know, it's just like, sometimes people think like, oh, it's just like one thing's going to kill you. Probably one thing isn't going to kill you. you probably, yeah. And you probably aren't doing a number of things as well as you could or should be doing it. You just don't, aren't quite aware of it yet, oftentimes. Or you, just, you're, you're aware of it, you just don't have the resources or time to make them better. But as long as you're doing enough things well enough or right, then um, you got a shot. Did you see the... Um Back of the envelope, how to estimate the annual revenues of any private company. No, but I thought about that. And it was funny. I was talking, before you get into it, I just want to say one thing. I, I was talking, when I was interviewing um, uh, Jessica Ma, actually, I called her. We had a follow-up discussion um, a couple days after our initial interview because I'd forgot to ask her about some of the customer development stuff, which we then discussed a little bit in our interview with um, uh, Gabriel. Yeah. And... I said, so how many customers do you have? Are we charging? And she goes, oh, yeah. She's like, I guess you could probably, yeah. Because she thought I was trying to reverse engineer her numbers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, I said, look, I, yeah, I could, I could easily do that. I said, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not trying to do that. And I won't discuss it. But it was so funny because it's so easy to do that, right? How many customers do you have? And all I have to do is say, well, basically, like, where are you on the, like, how, what percentage of your customers turn out to be paying? You know, and you mm-hmm. kind of know kind of a sense like what your pay scale is. It's pretty easy, right? I mean, mm-hmm. So what does this guy say? So he's basically saying annual revenue equals number of employees times 100,000. <sighs> Seems like a lot less uh, accurate than what I, the way I suggest. He's saying, but well, but he's saying back of the envelope. Like he's, he's not, <laughs> the point isn't to come up with an exact figure, but the point is to come up with a, a ballpark of kind of how big that company is. Right. Okay. Well, my my which is um, nuts because, for example, Plugio, the number of employees is one, and that would imply that Plugio makes a hundred thousand a year, but it doesn't. <laughs> okay. I think that probably doesn't include the founders working for free. So if you hired somebody, I see you actually paid somebody a full time salary. I right, right, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, that's probably not bad. See, mine, my my um formula only works for companies that have like a, a uh, I guess if they, if you know, so, so if they're disclosing some information, like how many users they have and they're disclosing their conversion rate, right? Or like, like, like what, I, or, or, or rather they, they, they have a freemium version, right? It's not so much your formula as mathematics. Right. No, my, my, my way of estimating, right? Okay. Which is like, if somebody says we have, if somebody's willing to disclose their whole, their, their numbers and they have a freemium version, then you can reverse engineer with some accuracy the way I suggested. If they either, do, if they don't have a freemium version, then it doesn't, doesn't work out. You don't have, you don't have enough information. What he's saying is you don't even have to have that kind of information, just hundred thousand. So yeah, this is probably a more robust, probably less accurate, but more robust way of estimating. Yeah. Because it, 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 any category of business it'll work for Interesting. Yeah, no, it's, that is kind of interesting. So it's it's good to, to think about it. But it, it, I think it probably also depends on what state the company's in. So it's like you say, you know, if they're in a startup state, then you you, you can't say that at all. But if they're in a, a more built up whoa, company, whoa, whoa, whoa. what do you mean in a startup state? Well, if they're in a startup state and like five people are working for you know for for bread and butter. Well, like I said, it, I think you're saying employees. He's not talking about co-founders who are working for free. Okay. So if you, I think if you're, I mean, I didn't read the article, but I assume that's what he's saying. How would you know? 
if you're just looking in, you know? Yeah, usually you can tell. But if, I, mean, I think when you have these little sort of fledgling startups that don't really have employees, I mean, yeah, I think he's talking about, you know, because if something's a real scrappy startup and it doesn't have employees and it just has a couple of co-founders, because usually it's like one or two people. Right, right. It becomes really inaccurate at that point. But once you have more than a, than a couple people, and you're and you're working, and the more more people you have, probably the more accurate the, the estimation, I guess. I mean, also if it's a fund, if it gets venture funded, you don't know too because they may have no revenue. In fact, a lot most of those venture funded companies don't have any revenue, and that's why they have venture funding because they have if they had a lot of revenue, they wouldn't need venture funding. You so know? a good um, a good article that I don't know whether you saw this was um, how do colors affect purchases. I saw that. I didn't read it. That's print. That's something I'm, I have on my to do to read list. I'd, I'd recommend for for people to have a look at it. Um, so just just type in how colors affect purchases into Google, and it's it's just it's very interesting. There's it, it's not like something that I could uh, specifically read through because what it is is they've got lots of stats and stats on the page. Uh, sorry, stats and charts on the page, but it's just interesting to see how for the different markets different colors work. So you know if you're going for a different crowd and different kind of people and um, well, we'll no. list a few. Um, okay, so color, basically color, color and marketing, they're talking about how important is sound and smell, how important okay. is texture, how important is visual appearance. So 93% of people say that uh, visual appearance is I- important. 6% say texture and 1% say sound and smell. Um, 85% of shoppers place color as prim- primary reason for why they buy a particular product. Right. Um, Color increases it increases brand recognition by eighty percent. Mm-hmm. Um, then they have the, like the different colors listed. So, for example, red is the energy color. It increases heart rate, creates urgency, often seen in clearance sales. Whereas blue creates a sensation of trust and security. Right. So it kind of goes through that. So that's what I'm saying. It's a bit difficult to read through because it's it's a it's a whole big um, kind of statistical analysis about colors. So there's a lot of different. Um uh, statistical facts that people can keep mind about how color affects exactly, and also decisions. how how color can kind of work in your market, right? So that so the kind of earth tones. If you look at mint, it's a classic example of how earth tones kind of work and build trust for a product. I thought you what, said blue was trust. Earth tones well, are more. He, he's sounds, he's right? they're, they're, they're saying blue here, but I mean they're also they also have another area that talks about earth tones, right? So they're both. So, yeah. So um, if you look at if you look at Mint, it has the Earth tones, which <clears throat> I think Mint does have some blue in it as well, doesn't it? I think it's green. Let's have a look. Yeah, you're right. It's green. What do they say about green? Your money. <laughs> green is associated with. Wait. Let me guess. Let me guess. I think it would be uh, op- uh, optimistic. No, that's yellow. Oh, okay. Okay, it says green is associated with wealthy, the easiest color for the eyes to process used to relax in stores. Cash. Money. Just send your cash. Cash. Right. <laughs> um, I don't know. Huh. So, and, you know, anyway, it's just a whole bunch of statistical uh, analysis about colors and how they relate to um, driving customers to, to take action. Right. So right. that's why I thought it was interesting. But you, right. you don't sound very impressed by it, <laughs> as usual. <laughs> no, I I plan on reading it. You just you just trying to give me a hard time, aren't you? No, I'm I'm not. It's okay. I got some. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Okay. All right. Down with innovation, up with imitation. Um, that was the name of the article. 
Yeah. And it was interesting. It was talking, the guy essentially railing against innovation because innovation has become this sort of like buzzword. Every company is innovation and they invest in innovation. But he's saying the cost of imitation are 60 to 70% the cost of innovation. And that um, another interesting fact, I guess, was that seven that pioneers to, who create new markets generally end up with only around 7% of the market they create. The mm-hmm. copycats get the rest. Mm, interesting. And um, he, he's saying, you know, it, it, he, one thing he was saying about it, I guess it, he was sort of referencing another discussion on this, but that innovation and creativity is, is so lauded that people become obviously can become very sort of pretentious about it. And he says something, innovation itself is a social process that depends on sharing at a certain rate. Your head is just the accidental crucible. So it's just because you came up with the idea, all those ideas were floating around. And just because you were the one it happened to manifest in at that point in time doesn't necessarily mean give you like sole proprietorship over it for like ever, you know, for 20 years or 17 years patent. So he's kind of putting that. Now, obviously, I think there's sort of a happy medium between there because if everybody was, if nobody was innovating, we'd be, you know, the, the, the culture and the, and the, um, economy would become stagnant, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so you have to have people who are willing to expend energy trying to make things better, more efficient, more powerful, more flexible, whatever, um, more usable. But at the same time, um, obviously, a lot of it can be wasted. So if from a business, I guess if you're talking freely from a utilitarian business perspective, you know, and I think a lot of people really imitate much more. They think they're being creative, but they're really just imitating. And a lot of these things that are innovations are just mostly just um, sort of taking something that already exists and evolving it just very slightly. Because things that are completely new innovations that are that are actually too new, people don't get. They don't understand. That's what I was kind of joking about. If everybody hated your idea, maybe it was innovation. It was just mm-hmm. the end of its time. Yeah. I um, mean, that's not always true. Sometimes ideas just suck. <laughs> but anyway, so I thought that was kind of interesting. And it kind of brought up another article that I'd read. Um, I don't have to link to it right here, but I'll find it, which was about, about Zynga. About um, Zynga makes like Farmville and Moff. Ma- yeah, Ma- they're the guys who like earn 300 million a year from being from just doing those games. Yeah. Yeah. Well, essentially, according to this pretty lengthy article, they're talking about how. You know, I talked to all these ex-employees and all these lawsuits. Essentially, all they did is go off and they ripped off these games. They're almost exact replicas of these games from smaller companies. Zynga did. Yeah. They just ripped everything off. And, and um, the, uh, Mark, was it Pincus or something? The uh, CEO of Zynga? I think, I, have the right, I think that's his name, Pincus. Anyway, he, he basically rails against these, like, don't innovate. And the people who have spent any time innovating and trying to come up with some new game, he just starts going nuts and screaming at him he's just like you know reverse engineer these things that work and then we'll just you know add something like add virtual money to it and that's as in but don't you think that's pretty disgusting it is it is well i was just saying i was kind of because it's funny because i had printed both those articles out back to back and i read them this guy's talking about you know down with innovation up with imitation and then it talks about this sort of the uh evilness of uh, Zynga and it was it was funny because all these ex-employees were talking about what a uh, what a sort of malignant place it was to work because of that and people felt really sort of yeah you'd feel you'd feel bad in your skin yeah that they would just go and just rip off all these games and they just said they made so much money that they could just use lawsuits to um you know uh, quash any of these um you know, these small companies that That's are trying just, to sue them. I just hate that. I mean, I, I'd rather be poor than do something like that. Well, I agree. I, I, it's like, I don't, 
I don't think you should get involved in any business that, you know, if you, if it makes you feel bad, strange in any way, the, you, you don't feel immediately. If there's anything about it that makes you feel uncomfortable, you shouldn't do it. Yeah. You know, it's just kind of like you shouldn't write an email that you don't, you wouldn't want your mom to read or you wouldn't want to show up on the front times of the front page of the New York times. <laughs> you know, it's always a good rule of thumb. And, uh, yeah, I just, this is really nasty business, <laughs> but you know, it's like a lot of these people who become very successful. I mean, it's not always true, but a lot of them, it turns out use very, questionable and nasty tactics to make things work and they were just well it's, you know, it's i mean it's a question good guys like, not good guys you know a lot of times you're a good guy and you just you just get screwed by the people who are cheating well i mean i wonder how many i wonder how many really successful people are good guys there was that did you see that whole blog post about bill bill gates the hero yeah so it was it was someone's kind of saying all the good things that Bill had done and with his with his organization. But then if you if you looked at the comments, oh, that great! There was a great comment where the guy just railed against it. it was awesome. Completely, he was like, he, and obviously he was someone from the time, and he was basically you know discussing all the the bad practices that Bill all Gates the destroyed engaged lives and destroyed in the wake and all the just really sickening things that Microsoft did to yeah. destroy innovation and close markets down and kill companies and it was just yeah. disgusting and yeah maybe he's with all the money he's doing good by saving the lives of all these people and all these um, underdeveloped countries which is amazing but you just it doesn't mean that he didn't do these other things yeah exactly you know he's and just trying to, that's it. he probably feels so freaking bad for how he behaved in business that's why well, you know what? I think most people I know who who I think of that are are, are pretty uh, that have some evil in them or do evil, they don't think they're evil at all. Yeah, that's true. They all rationalize what they do, and they either don't think about it or they they recast it in such a way that it's just to them it's just the you know um, cost of doing business, and they're just a, a, a business person, right? It's not personal; it's just business, and. Um, it's kind of funny. It, was, it reminds me of uh, there's this funny animation movie. I think it was a Pixar movie called Monsters vs. Aliens. Yeah. And my kids have watched it a million times, so I've obviously kind of I've practically memorized it. And it's one part where this alien has come down to sort of take over Earth, and he kind of it shows this projection in the sky, and it says something like, you know. All the people, you know, we were going to come down and take all your resources, and most of you will die, and those who won't be won't be killed will be enslaved and experimented on. But <laughs> none of this, under any circumstances, should be taken personally. It's just business. So just to <laughs> recap, most of you will die. The rest will be enslaved. Uh, Galax are out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not a very good par- uh, imitation of it, but it's just—it was so funny. It's just business, and uh, I think that's how a lot of business people rationalize it. They just, you know, they—you know—you get into situations, and you just the money. And I, I, dude, I've been on the wrong side of this about four times in my life. And so now I'm becoming very wary of doing business deals with people that yeah. are very, very clear and standard and simple because um, what ends up happening is if you don't have the resources to enforce your side of the deal and they have a significant amount of resources and they're not like somebody who's like within your social circle, right? Mm-hmm. So there'll be major repercussions among their entire social life if they did something um, unethical or illegal, they'll do it. 
They will take their shot. If they literally them. will do it. And, and I know that that's happened to you recently and it's very, very irritating, that, that whole yeah. story. I mean, it's not something I, I, I want to talk yeah, about um, publicly because what happens is you talk about a story publicly and people will assume automatically, well, Jason, there's two sides of the story and whatever you're saying is probably only half true, in which case, I, you know, it's like whatever. It's mm-hmm. like it's stupid. So it's, it's, it's pointless to even bring it up uh, publicly. But yeah, I, so I will say that, that, you know, that's just what happens. So these, these people, these CEOs who've been successful, they're just... Um, Be very careful any kind of uh, deals you sign. So anyway, look, let, oh, let, go on. I want I one more point on that. Unless you're going to change the subject, I want one more point on that. I, get, I was going to change the subject and also say, I think that uh, we should uh, kind of get to, the, get to the end of it just because I have to go quite soon, just to let you okay. know. One, one, one last thing. So a friend of mine called me up and he's... Um, He's a uh, friend of mine from college. Another, it's like all these friends of mine in college who I played soccer with in college. He, um, he's uh, a guy named Schumann. He's has a PhD in math and a master's in financial engineering. And he was he actually worked at Goldman Sachs, Chocolate Evil Corporations. Um, and uh, you know he's been out of there for a while. And he called me up and he's like, you know, looking to get into sort of like uh, doing some consulting on um, sort of data analysis and, you know, sort of deep model building and analytics. Yeah. And he and I had talked about maybe collaborating on some stuff. You know, so I have these two things that I may be collaborating for consulting purposes. One is the mobile app development with Taylor and Mark, and one might be sort of doing this uh, data analytics stuff with um, with Schumann. So he says, well, you know, I've been talking to this one company, and, you know, they're a startup, and they want to talk about this equity stuff. And I was like, negative. They're going to give you equity instead of paying you. I says, look, I, I mean, if you're doing that, just assume you're never going to get paid. If, if you're just going to do it for free, kind of like as a, you just want to make some connections and just kind of, you have enough money in the bank, that's not a big deal, which it may be the case for him. But I was like, you know what, better is to make a very simple, either they pay you something straight up and then make a very simple contract that if they do get a first round of funding that you get paid X, period. Yeah. But all this equity stuff and I'm just like, I, you know, unless it's like your childhood buddy, I wouldn't do it because no. there's a good chance that not only are they, there's a good chance that first of all, they're not going to get funded or they're not going to make any money. And so if they you, do, you will be ripped off. There's a good chance that it's just not going to happen. And I hate to sound cynical like that. I've just been through it, you know, so many times and I've seen it so many times that I would be remiss not to point that out to people that when people say, oh, well, you know, it's my company and, you know, I, you know, you know, you have X percent, this and that, and you even have a contract. I mean, you know, I just wouldn't do it. I don't do it. Just, you know, I'm either like either I own it or I'm like a core, like a equal co-founder with somebody and we own it together and they don't seriously outweigh me and their financial resources so that they can just like kind of kill me with legal costs if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Or I'm a mercenary. Pay me. You got 30 days terms. If not, I stop working on it. Period. You know, yep. straight up. It's just Good no. Advice. Just own it. or Because a buddy of mine, Mitchell, who's a stuntman, and he's also a writer, producer, director type, you know, and he's been pretty successful in both cases. And he's like, yeah, you know, I own stuff. I own these scripts and stuff, and some of the stuff's worked out really well for him. He's like, and then sometimes I take a break, and I go work on a film for a month or two months, and I'm just a mercenary for two months. Just, you know, I show up. I do my job. I get paid. I'm done. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's, a real bra- it's real nice to take a break and just be a mercenary. It doesn't mean that you're not professional and you don't take pride in your work, but... You know, that's it. It's just a real clear cut. Don't work for equity unless you're 19 and you can afford to make that kind of mistake. <laughs> right. Just know you're probably not going to – there's a good chance you're not going to get paid. I mean, if, if you're with a bunch of buddies um, and you're all doing it together and you go through some kind of standard process with Y Combinator and you have people around you, there's enough people paying attention to you that you can't get screwed unless – and if you do, it'll come out in the limelight. Don't do it. Okay. So um, just before we go, I just want to finish with this last thing. Did you see um, 
uh, on stack, the Stack Overflow link, what is the best comment in source code you've ever encountered? Uh, no. <laughs> so, so, so then, so of those links, someone posted the most insightful code comment ever. Uh-huh. So I went to look at that, and this, this is the one that's kind of raised on Hacker News. So basically, uh, th- this guy says, I'm particularly guilty of this, embedding non-constructive comments, code poetry, and little jokes into most of my projects. Here's one I'm particularly fond of, placed far, far down in a poorly designed God object. So the comment goes, and, and bear in mind, this is a comment that probably around 20,000 people have looked at now. Okay. okay. For the brave souls who get this far, you are the chosen ones, the valiant <laughs> knights of programming who will toil away without rest, fixing our most awful code. To you, true saviors, kings of men, I say this, never going to give you up, never going to let you down. Never going to run around and desert you. <laughs> Never going to make you cry. <laughs> Never going to say goodbye. Never going to tell a lie and hurt you. What he is frick- that? He rickrolled them. <laughs> <laughs> he rickrolled them in text. Good. I like that. <laughs> You know, I've I've never seen I've never seen um I've never been rickrolled I've never seen a, what's it called the Rick uh, what's oh it the Rick Astley oh you've never been rickrolled I've never I've purposely and I there's two things I've avoided this the guy's rickrolled like twenty thousand people in text which is amazing like no, that that's is impressive. A, a new concept of rickroll that's impressive <laughs> that's impressive I've almost what was there was one really disgusting image like Goatsy or something that people were passing around for a while a couple of years okay. ago years ago right I always avoided that one too. I can't no, believe you haven't seen the, um, the, 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 what's his name? Rick Astley, the Rick Astley song. No, I just said, I'm going to avoid it. I you just know like, the song, don't you? You know, uh, well, I do now because I guess you just sort of sung it to me. You know <laughs> the tune, right? No. Never going to give you up. Yeah. <laughs> ring a bell. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I think that's a show for us, right? I think so. I got nothing else. Let's call it. All right. That's a wrap. We're out. Never gonna give you up, never gonna let you down, never gonna run around and desert you.